Have you ever had conflicting voices in your life? I'm sure we all have. All you have to do today is listen to more than one news organization. Maybe listen to the same news organization. And you'll hear conflicting voices. If you're like me, you just want the facts. And then you'll make up your own mind about what they mean or, or what, what is going on in the world. But today it's very popular to tell you what you should think. Tell you how you should feel about certain things going on in the world. Very frustrating to me. It's confusing. What's worse than that is conflicting voices when it pertains to your soul and your religion and your worship. That goes on as well. Maybe just as much or even more as, as what goes on in the world. We hear all the time about how we should feel about certain commandments that God has made. Well, that pertained to them a long time ago. That doesn't pertain to us today. You're looking at that the wrong way. You should look at it from a different perspective. And maybe you'd understand it a little differently. That doesn't apply. No longer applies. We hear these voices all the time. That's also frustrating and confusing. 1 Kings, the 11th and 12th chapter, we read of a man named Jeroboam. And the scriptures refer to Jeroboam as a mighty man, and that's a very vague definition. A mighty man can mean a very large individual, maybe even a giant. Uh, it might mean that he's powerful, either physically powerful or of a man of great influence, a powerful politically, you might say. Maybe it means he was a great warrior, uh, uh, a military mind, a military strategist, very good at his job. You know, I don't know what Jeroboam was exactly with regard to that. Maybe he was all of them. I don't know. But one thing you can define him as by using the term a mighty man is he was a man that had to be dealt with. He was someone to be reckoned with. And I think if you read through the 11th, 12th chapter of Kings, you see that. That he was indeed a, a person that had to be reckoned with. At one time, King Solomon made Jeroboam the ruler over the house of, of Joseph. Now, that doesn't mean that he was the go-to guy. In other words, anybody had any problems out of the house of Joseph, they came to Jeroboam and he solved them or, or reconciled disputes or whatever. What it means was he was a taskmaster. In other words, he was responsible for extracting a certain amount of labor from the house of, of Joseph. That was his job, to make sure that he got a certain amount of work from them. a prophet of God met him on a road one day and told him that God is going to take Israel away from the family of Solomon. Solomon was king. David was king first, and then Solomon was king. And now his son is about to be king. 
And this prophet of God told Jeroboam, God's going to take Israel out of this family's power and he's going to give you ten of the tribes to rule over. Well, Solomon heard this, as, as you might expect. He heard about this and he was not pleased. So Jeroboam ended up having to flee into Egypt in order to save his life because his life was in jeopardy if he stayed in Israel. And now Solomon has died. Rehoboam is about to become king. And so Jeroboam comes back to Shechem because that's the place that, that uh, Rehoboam's coronation of, of being king is going to take place in. I guess he felt like he had maybe some influence over Rehoboam. Maybe he, he wasn't in jeopardy anymore. In fact, the people of Israel asked him to come back. And so he did. And when he got back, he and the people went to Rehoboam together and they made a request. And that request was that their burden, which they said was grievous, put upon them by Solomon, that their burden be lightened. Now whether that burden was actually grievous or not is, is a subject of some dispute because in the time of Solomon, uh, peace and wealth and prosperity was abundant. But nevertheless, the people thought that something needed to change. Whether they were being taxed more than they thought they should be or whether they just wanted this burden of labor that they were to produce to be reduced, they, they wanted this load to be lightened. So they made this request with Jeroboam of the king, Rehoboam. And he consulted with old men. He consulted with young men. And he decided to go with the suggestion of the young man, which was to tell the people that it's going to get worse. My little finger is going to be like my father's thigh. It's, things are going to get worse. The advice the young man gave him was to double the burden. So as you can imagine, this didn't go over well and, and uh, ended up, this was what caused the split of the house of Israel. And indeed, ten, king, ten, ten tribes of the house of Israel were rent out of the hand of Rehoboam and give to Jeroboam. So now he's king over these ten tribes. And he immediately makes a decision that changes the course of the future. That decision is that the people of Israel no longer need to go to Jerusalem to worship. He sets up two golden caves in, the, in Dan and Bethel. In 1 Kings 12, 28 and 29, whereupon the king took counsel and made two caves of gold and said unto them, it is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Was that the gods? Were these golden caves the gods of Israel that brought them up out of Egypt? No. They were supposed to worship the one true and living God. They were supposed to go to Jerusalem to do that. But Jeroboam, he says, too much. I'm going to lighten your load. I'm going to make it easier. I've set up these, these caves. He set, verse 29 says, he set the one in Bethel and the other in Dan. Here's, here's where you need to go to worship. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. It's too much. But what he was really afraid of, or what, what the Bible says in verse 30, is that this thing became sin. And the reason 
was because what he was afraid of in 1 Kings 12 and 27. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Here's what's going to happen. If I let them go to Jerusalem to worship as God commanded them to do, they're going to fall under the rule of Rehoboam. They're going to just fall right in line and they're going to be under his rule again and he's going to have me killed and this is going to be what happens. So he's afraid and he makes this decision to keep them from going to Jerusalem. Now we come to the 13th chapter and we see where the, the study that we want to consider this morning the Bible says, And behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord into Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. I thought all my life that this was a young prophet. And maybe he was. I don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about how old a man he was. The Bible simply says he was a man of God. Now there's another character we'll find in the story here in just a moment that is referred to as an old prophet, but this man is only referred to as a man of God. I thought all my life he was a young prophet. I don't know, he may have been an old man too, for all I know. But we do know that he was a man of God, and he was sent there to do, to do a job. He had a mission. <clears throat> what was that mission? Verse 1 there of 1 Kings 13 tells us that he came to Bethel by the word of God. God sent him there. The word of God told him to go there. And as you read through this story, it's easy to see the courage that he had, the courage I guess anyone would have, when they knew that they had authority as being a messenger of God. It's easy to see his courage. God told him to cry out against the idolatrous altar there in Bethel, and that's what he did. He didn't come to town and, and slink around the shadows and stay in the alleyways and the corners and try to build up a coalition that would listen to him. He walked right up to the altar with Jeroboam standing right there offering incense on the altar, and he said, this is not right. This is not what to be done. You're supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship. You're supposed to worship the one true and living God, not these golden caves that have been set up. He cried out. He did just exactly what he was supposed to do. You see the courage that he had, knowing that he had the authority of God behind him. He was fearless in the presence of a king that wanted to have him killed. Because as soon as he cried out against the altar, Jeroboam said, take that man, and he couldn't pull his hand back to himself because his hand withered. You think he didn't see that? You think this man of God didn't see that and say, whoa, I really do have the authority of God behind me. I really don't have anything to be afraid of. God's going to take care of me. Jeroboam saw it also. He saw the power of God as well. He saw God protecting this man. Changed his attitude in a hurry. He went from wanting to seize that man and probably have him put to death to saying, 
Come to my house and, and eat and drink and rest. I'll give you a reward. I'll reward you for making my body whole again. Verse 7, the Bible says, And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. Now listen to what the man of God says. He said unto, him, unto the king, If thou wilt give me but half thy house, I will not go with thee. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. You think he had any doubt in his mind what his mission was? He said, God told me to come here, to cry out against the altar, not to eat any bread, not to drink any water, and go back a different direction than I came from. He wouldn't even go in with the king at the king's request. <clears throat> Verse 9, For so was it charged to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, drink no water, nor return again by the way thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way that he came to Bethel. He followed the Lord's commands precisely. He came, he did his mission, he cried out against the altar, he didn't eat anything, he didn't drink anything, and he turned around and he left by a different way from what he came. He followed the commands of the Lord perfectly. And I want you to know that this is the first instance where this man had a conflicting voice in his life. The king says, no, no, it's all right. Come back. Come back and eat with me and drink with me. Refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. No way. Not going to do it. He's already left. He's already gone back a different way. Then we see the old prophet in Bethel. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about this man. Why he remained in Bethel even after they turned to idolatry, that would have been an interesting question to ask. We know that he had family there because he had two sons that witnessed this man of God crying out against the altar. They witnessed what he said and they went back and they told her, Father, what was said? And after learning of these things, this old prophet wanted to meet this man. He wanted to talk to him. He went in search of him. Verse 18 says, He said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. He found this man. And the angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee into thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. The Bible says he lied to him. He lied to him. He told him he had a commandment from God. He told him the angel of the Lord appeared to him and told me to bring you back. But he lied to him. He convinced him. He convinced him to violate the word of God. That's what a conflicting voice can do. To us, that's the damage of it. So let's consider these conflicting voices and what they can do. When the old prophet found the young man, or the, the man of God, I still think he'd be young man. When he found the man of God, he was sitting under an oak tree. Now you may think that's a small thing, and I guess it is. 
but I think it reflects the mood of the man. We see how strong he was when he was with the king. His defenses were up. The king tried to get him to stay. I'm not having any of it. Not doing it. But now the mission's been fulfilled. I've done what I was supposed to do down to the very fact that I have left. I've left the, the city of Bethel. Now I'm a little bit tired. I am hungry. You know, I didn't think about it before because my nerves had the best of me and I didn't think about being hungry. But now that I'm relaxed, that adrenaline rush has kind of left me. I'm, I am a little hungry. I'm a little thirsty. You know, it would have been nice to go with the king. How many chances do you get to go to the house of a king? would have been nice to go and eat with the king and, and drink with the king. And I could, I could say, man, I, I, I was with the, in the presence of the king. That would have been nice. Maybe he's sitting under this oak tree resting, thinking about those things. Have you ever thought about what happens how your mood affects the way you receive the Word of God? Have you ever come to church services and been hungry or thirsty or extremely tired because you get any, didn't get any rest the night before? Maybe you're just stressed out about something in particular. You ever notice how that affects the way you receive the Word of God? You don't receive it good. You're not strong in it. You're worried about something else. You're thinking about something else. You're concentrating about something else. And the next thing you know, you may be thinking about how this particular teaching or this particular scripture affects me or maybe how it affects someone else. And then we begin to see things in a negative way and not in a positive way. We don't see the way it benefits us, but we see what it takes away from us. We're looking at it negatively. It's possible that that's what this man was doing. He was beginning to see the negative side of this whole mission. Even though it had been fulfilled, you know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired. I'd like to rest a little bit. When this old prophet comes to him, initially he puts up a barrier. Initially there's some resistance. He repeats what he had told the king. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to drink or eat or, and I'm supposed to go back another way. But then he tells him, I also am a prophet. I also have been told by an angel to bring you back, to feed you, to allow you to rest. But he lied to him. But it seems like he didn't put up much resistance. When he told him that lie, it seemed like he was Pretty well ready to believe it. Pretty well ready to go along with just this pesky little commandment of God if I could get past that. <clears throat> he was probably thinking just for a brief moment, you know, I really ought to do what God told me to do, but that's not really what I want to do. What I really want to do is go back and eat and drink and rest. 
It didn't take much for him to believe what he wanted to be true. Isn't that true for us today? It didn't take a lot for us to want to believe something else. When we learn the truth and a situation arises in which we don't know what to do, don't know what to believe, we need to remember John 14 and 6. Jesus saith to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. You know, I guess I thought and when I was young, especially as a child, I would hear this story in 1 Kings, and I'd think, that's just not right. I mean, the guy lied to him. Why would it cost him his life? And it did indeed cost him his life. If you read the story, you'll know that when he eventually left Bethel to go home, he was killed by a lion. Why would that happen? I mean, the guy lied to him. He was, a, he was an innocent victim, right? Maybe you think that today. Maybe you think it was cruel that he would be condemned uh, for a mistake, a simple mistake. Is that all it was? I think there's some questions we need to ask ourselves. Maybe three questions we ought to consider. Was his duty to God's command really hidden by the lie? Did the lie really hide, hide the, the duty to God's command? Was it just a mistake? Was it just a simple mistake that he accepted it? Was he really a helpless victim? You know, that's, that's what I thought when I was younger. This guy was a helpless victim. He was victimized by a lie. But was he really a helpless victim because of this lie? <clears throat> John 14 and 6 again, Jesus saith to him, I am the way. What changed that? Just because of the lie, just because of someone that claimed to be a prophet of God told him a lie, what changed the fact that Jesus is true and that Jesus is the way. Nothing changed. Nothing changed at all in that regard. The first message came to him directly from God. No doubt about it. There was no doubt about it. It came to him directly from God. He knew it was true. It was also confirmed by miracles at the altar when Jeroboam reached out his hand and his hand withered. And then the man of God prayed to God and the hand was restored. He knew that the message was true. So there could be no mistake that the first message was true. The original message. There could be no mistake about it. John 20 verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might... Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing he might have life through his name. Have you ever thought about that from this story's point of view? This story is written in the Bible so we can learn from it. Have you ever thought about that? It's written in there it's for, for our admonition, for our understanding that we might know not to believe a lie when we have the truth of the word of God. 
2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. When we have the word of God, when we have the commandment of God, the message of God, there's no mistake. It's, it's true. There's no mistake of it. What about the second message? The second message came to him from a total stranger, somebody he never knew. It was not accompanied with any kind of sign or indication that it was of divine origin. So the least you could say is this man abandoned a certainty for an uncertainty. That's the very best you could say. 1 John 4 and 1 says, Beloved, believe not the Spirit, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Wouldn't it have been correct for this man to presume that if God wanted a different outcome, if, he, if God changed his mind, that he would present that to him in the same way that he presented the first message the original message. Isn't that reasonable? Why, why would we say that the lie obscured it? He had the truth. If God wanted him to do something else, then God would have approached him in the same way. He would have delivered that order in the same direct manner that he delivered the first order. It would have been unmistakable, no doubt about it. God would have communicated it in the same way. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners, or in different times and different manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. He's spoken unto us, and this time, by his Son, through the Word of God. There's no mistake about it. Everything we need to know comes from the scriptures. Consider, for example, some things the young, younger man, if he was a younger man, could have asked. Some questions he could have asked the old prophet. The old prophet lived in Bethel, the very center at that time of religious rebellion. Why are you living here? Why are you staying here? What are you doing here? Are you doing anything to change it? The old prophet lived among these people, but as far as we can tell by the Bible, he never spoke out against this idolatry. He never said a word about it. He's just content to live there. I wonder if the man of God ever considered that God never told him that there was a prophet already in Bethel. Why wouldn't he have? If he intended for him to, to uh, submit himself to the older man, why wouldn't he have told him that he was there? Perhaps the man of God could have asked the old prophet in Bethel, what have you done lately? What are you doing now for God? 
You know, we kind of understand this idea because we have the New Testament and we read in the New Testament about the possibility, the probability, the truth of false prophets and to beware of them. But what did they have back in that time? Well, I'll tell you what they had. Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 and 22. But the prophet which shall presume to speak a word in my name which I have not commanded him to speak. In other words, a prophet that's saying something that I didn't tell him to say. Or that shall speak in the name of other gods. Even that prophet shall die. He's condemned to death. Verse 21, And if thou say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord hath not spoken? Verse 22, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if a thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is a thing which the Lord hath not spoken. But the prophet had spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. It's pretty simple, you know it? That's pretty simple for us to apply today. How many times during your lifetime have you heard someone say, well, the world is going to end on this date at this time? Didn't happen. Why are you afraid of those people? The Bible says don't be afraid of them. They're saying something that I never told them to say. They had this way back in the day of Jeroboam and the day of this man of God when he went down to Bethel. They had this knowledge. So why couldn't he have asked the old prophet, what have you done? Tell me what you've done. What have you prophesied that has come true? Might have saved his life. Since God was communicating at that time through prophets, he made sure that people could tell who the true prophets were. Well, what does this have for us today? What's the the value in it? What's the lesson for us to learn today? 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 tells us, Now all these things happen to them for examples that they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. So when we look at this story and we see the destructive forces of conflicting voices in a man's life, it was written for our example, for our learning, for our admonition. It was written for an example for us. Think about what that means. This story is preserved that we might not make that same mistake. Romans 15 and 4. For whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. If God hadn't given us a way to determine who was speaking truth and who wasn't speaking truth, we wouldn't have any hope. There's no way we could determine that. We talk about people being gullible today and I've been accused of that myself. But if we didn't have a way of determining the truth, we'd have no hope. So what did God do? He gave us the scriptures. And he said, this is the way that you determine what's true and what's not. 1 Peter 1.25 But the word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. That's the value of having that word of God in your hand. That's the value of studying it, learning it. 
It's the gospel. It's been preached. And there are many people that would take advantage. There are many people who are willing to let others tell them what they need to believe. But the Word endures forever. And when we compare those, those teachings to the Word, how do they stand up? How are we to know what's right in such cases? How are we to know that we're following the right path? We need to beware of our own desires. We saw that in this study this morning. Beware of the things that we want. Recognize that we need Christ. That we need the Lord. Jeremiah 10 and 23 says, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We need to remember that. We need to also stay within the boundaries of the truth that has been revealed to us, which is the Bible in Galatians 1 verses 6 through 9. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ and to another gospel, which Paul says in verse 7, which is not another it's not another gospel. It's a lie. But there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. Do you know what this means? Have you ever thought about this? Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 and 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. What if some point later in his life, Peter had said, You know what? I've been thinking about that a lot, and I don't think that's necessary. I, I don't really think you have to do that anymore. You know what that scripture is telling us? We don't believe him. We don't believe Peter if he comes along and says that at a later time because he's not supposed to preach any other gospel than we've received and we've received this gospel. That's how important it is for us. That's how important it is for us to resist conflicting voices. And the thing of it is sometimes those conflicting voices come within our own selves. They come internally. And we need to consider how to deal with that. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28, the Bible says, But what thank you? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir. He went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, the first. Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and you believed him not. But the publicans and harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward that ye might believe him. You know, most of us have studied the word of God for a long time. We've had it preached to us for a long time. And we know what's right. 
And sometimes we're just like this first son, maybe even the second son. Sometimes we say, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. And then in a time of reflection, we say, you know what? That's not right. God told me what I was supposed to do, and I should do it. And then we, we repent, and we do what's right. That's how you deal with a conflicting voice when it's within. You go to the Word of God and you remember what you've been taught. And you remember what God has taught you and you repent and you say, I was wrong. But when you get to the point where you say, okay, I'll do it, and then you don't, then you're not acceptable to God. Jesus said there that the publicans and harlots would go into the kingdom of God before these guys because they they believed it not. And then when they saw it with their own eyes, they still wouldn't repent. They still wouldn't repent and believe it. There are many teachers and preachers and, and even our own selves that tell us sometimes we don't need to go to the Bible. I'm 60 years old and... I've been reading the Bible and studying the Bible since I could read and, and study. Surely there's nothing else in there I can I need anymore. Surely there's nothing that I haven't studied before. There are preachers that'll tell you you don't need to go to the Bible because it's very difficult to understand. You need to be have a certain level of education to understand it. You need to let me tell you what you need to know. That's a lie. That's a lie. That's a conflicting voice. It's a lie you don't want to believe. When compared to the Word of God, most of these teachings can be seen to be in opposition to God. There are so many teachings that we can apply this lesson to today. Many say that faith only can save you. What does the Bible say? Can one be saved without baptism? What does the Bible say? God is a loving God and He will not punish someone just for a mistake. What do you think the man of God in 1 Kings would tell you about that? If you accept Jesus as your Savior, you can live any way you want to live. What does the Bible say? What does the Word of God say about that? Well, there are alternative lifestyles today, and they're just like any other lifestyle, and they should be accepted. What does the Bible say? What's the truth of the matter? You see, these voices will tell us anything we want to hear. But what's the truth of the matter? There are always conflicting voices, whether they come within or without. Sometimes you have to look very closely to see them. Do you see? Now if you looked over it real quickly, you might not see him. Do you see him right there? 
Why not trust the good shepherd? He knows the wolf's there. He knows what to do about him. He knows how to deal with him. Why not trust him instead of trusting someone else? Someone we may not even know. Someone that may not have our best interest at heart. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you'd like to know more about this subject or any other Bible topic, send us a message at our Facebook page, The Church of Christ, Wheeler Area.